Welcome to the Thrive Church Podcast. Listen anytime you miss a service or want to hear a message again from our Sunday worship services and select special services. Lead Pastor Brian Bauer, as well as guest speakers, will bring messages that will help you encounter God, love people. Join us for virtual service on Facebook Live at Encounter Thrive. Or for those comfortable, we'd love to have you for our in-person services Sundays at 10. To learn about us, what we believe, how to connect, how to give, or how to find us, visit the all-new EncounterThrive.com. And now, here is our message. Well, um, can y'all listen to a Texan? <laughs> I sound different because I live in Lubbock, Texas. Anybody know where Lubbock's at? If you found Dallas, found Dallas, you go 350 miles due west, just like that. I'm from a part of Texas where it is so flat, you could let your dog run away for three days call his name and he'd come running back. We actually have uh, towns called Level Land, Littlefield, Post, Plains. Um, I'm forgetting some, but we've got a bunch of, bunch of cotton farmers out there. It's uh, the home of Texas Tech University. And um, I, I know y'all are going to scream at me, but I, uh, if you cut me in this arm, I bleed, bleed red and black, and you cut me in this arm, I bleed silver and blue for the Cowboys. So, so um, yeah, y'all can pray for me. Yeah, that's what y'all can do. Uh, and, and you better have a lot of faith, because that's been in me a long time. Um, man, God's good, isn't he? As... When Brian, Pastor Brian asked me to come and speak at this event with you guys, I started praying and, you know, the three messages that, that I'm going to bring, two and a half actually, um, are on the subject of shame. And I know that's, I know from experience, that's not a subject that a lot of people preach on, you know? Um... And, and before I dive into it, I just want to help you feel a little more comfortable listening to me. I'm 65 years old. I'm an old fart. Uh, I don't act like it, think like it, or feel like it, but that's the fact. That's when I was born. Um, I've been married to the same woman for 45 years. We've got three adult children um, and seven grandchildren. Uh, my youngest son, is uh, he's just turned 40. Um, he is a pastor in Visalia, California. Pastors a church of about 2,500 people out there. And um, my oldest son, he's 40, about to be 45. He's a uh, builder, builds houses, builds backyard kitchens, builds pergolas and backyards. And, um, and my daughter is, uh, she's in the middle of these, and these two boys are huge. Jeff and Lance both are 6'3", and just big old boys. She's four foot eleven, and <laughs> she, she sells real estate and is super good at it. But um, I've talked about shame before in other places and other venues. But I want to tell you the genesis of how my message on shame came about. My brother talked about sex trafficking and things like that. And shame's a tool of the devil, let me just tell you, up front. And we know as men of God, guys that are young men, older men, we've got all ages in between in here tonight, which I love. Shame is a tool of the enemy to stop us as believers. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So the genesis in my heart was like this. For 26 years, I traveled all over the country and all over the world speaking in public schools about not having sex till you're married. One of the unique privileges I got, I didn't go in as a pastor. I went in as a consultant. I started a, a separate company. Um, although if they were, if principals, teachers, students, if they were Christ followers, they could tell where I got my material. All I did was take biblical principles and 
secularism, used secular words to describe what the Bible said. And um, the cool thing about it was that I wasn't standing up there talking in front of students about something I'd wish I'd done or something that uh, would be helpful for them. I did it. The first time I ever had sex in my life was July the 15th, 1978 in Austin, Texas at the Hilton Hotel at 11.30 at night in room 1158. <laughs> you, you know why I remember it so well? It was my first time, and it was my wedding night. So I wasn't standing up there talking about being a virgin and staying pure till you're married and saying, hey, this will be a really good thing for you to do. I did it. I could teach them how to do it. But what I discovered working with teenagers and even parents, because I did hundreds of parent meetings. I know telling you numbers and statistics really probably won't impress you, but, but I've just got to impress upon you the door that God opened for me because I had nothing to do with it. it was, the story's too long to tell, but after 26 years, I spoke to over 6 million kids in public schools. Dr. Phil's show, what got me on the Dr. Phil show, I did four documentaries about teenagers and sex, one in London, one in England, two here in America, and one of the ones here in America won 11 awards at the Sundance Film Festival. And that's what gave me my 15 minutes of fame on Dr. Phil. But God opened, God's able to do anything, guys, and I'm living proof of that, okay? Because I got a little bitty old half degree from Christ for the Nations Institute and God opened up, I don't even have a, I don't have a bachelor's, I don't have a master's, I am definitely not a doctor. I'm just a man of God that believes that God can do supernatural things and give me favor, and he did. Six million kids, think about that. But here's the thing. God allowed me to counsel students after school, sometimes during school. I had several schools over the years that would say, we want you to teach in the morning, and then we're going to put a legal pad in the attendance office, and we're going to say appointments for sex ed, and they've got to have the courage. This is what they told and I developed a way to do it. I said, you've got to have the guts to go sign your name in the attendance office where everybody can see it. And then they gave me an office that had windows in it, because if girls came in, I wanted everybody to be able to see that there wasn't anything weirdness going on. And, um, but man, the amount of shame I dealt with with students over the issue of sexual impropriety and some of it was abuse, some of it was, um, just, I mean, we're Christians here tonight. Some of it was just sin. Some of them didn't know God from a hole in the wall and that they were looking for love and they thought love and sex were the same thing. They found out it wasn't. So the genesis of me thinking about shame came from a secular, worldly place, public school. I started reading books about shame, and not very many of them out there. There's really, really very few books in, in the Christian world on shame. A lot of people write about guilt, but guilt and shame aren't the same thing. Even secular writers would write on it, and I started looking for a helpful definition on shame. And I really couldn't find one. And I'm going to define it for you tonight. I'm going to define it from Webster's New Collegiate 3rd Edition Dictionary, and then I'm going to give you my definition. But before we do that, let's stand and honor God's Word and read John chapter 8. We're going to talk, we're going to start tonight with the woman, at the, the woman caught in adultery. How many of you are familiar with that passage? Going to read this out of the Message Bible here tonight. Jesus went across to the Mount of Olives, but he was soon back in the temple again. Swarms of people came to him. He sat down and taught them. The religion scholars and Pharisees led in a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Let's just pause. Time out. Press pause. Jesus is in church. Swarms of people are coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The religious leaders, the scholars and Pharisees, in the middle of Jesus' teaching, like right now, in the middle of my teaching, somebody could 
brought in a woman caught in adultery. You know what that means? The people that caught her were pervert peeping toms. They were sick. Not your head at me if you're reading the same Bible I'm reading. Right. They stood her in plain sight in front of everyone and said, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed. They were peeping. In the act of adultery, having sex with someone she's not married to. Moses, in the law, orders to stone such persons. What do you say? So here's what they're thinking about. They got a Bible in one hand and a rock in the other. I don't know about y'all. It sounds like church today. There's a lot of people in our churches. They got a rock in one hand and a Bible in the other, and they want to beat the snot out of you if you're not living right. I'm not here to do that tonight. I know better. And besides, the law of Moses said stone the man and the woman. So you know what my thought is? It was one of them, the Pharisees, and they weren't going to stone the person they were in cahoots with, trying to trap Jesus. Now that's just some theory. I could be wrong. What do you say? They were trying to trap him. There it is. Saying something incriminate. They were trying to get him to say something that would incriminate him so they could bring charges against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger, and there's all kinds of stuff. People write books about this stuff, but nobody knows what he wrote. So I'm not even going to tell you what I think he wrote. They kept him, they kept at him, badgering him. He straightened up and said, the sinless one among you, go first. Throw the, throw the first rock. Bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. This, there's, man, there's all kinds of conjecture. Names of the guy that was in the room with her. Uh, I mean, other people's sins. I don't know what he was writing in the dirt. Hearing that, they walked away one after another, beginning with the oldest. The woman was left alone, and Jesus stood up and spoke to her. So evidently, he had still, was still down in the dirt, riding, and he stood, stands up. Woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? No one, master. Neither do I, said Jesus. Go on your way from now on and don't sin. Lord, we thank you for the word of God tonight. The word of God's where the power is. The power's not in the preacher. The preacher's just the message, messenger. The power is in the promises of the scriptures. And my prayer is that you will take my feeble attempt at preaching tonight. And Lord, you will anoint these words with authority and clarity, and they will penetrate not just a brain, but they'll go from their head down into their heart. It'll become life. It'll become truth. It'll become application. And Lord, for that man that's listening to me tonight that thinks he's gone too far, he's done too much wrong, that he'll never attain it, he'll never get there. I bind the lies of Satan tonight. And Lord, I open up every, I pray and believe and have been praying and believing that you open up the hearts of men and young men tonight to see the hand of God's grace upon them. And Father, I promise to give you all the glory and the honor and praise for what you're going to do tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. You know, let's talk about sin for just a second. Again, that's not a subject very many preachers preach on anymore, is sin. Sin is sin, am I right? Lying is equal to murder, am I right? Now, there's only one place that that's true between, with you and your relationship with God. Sin is sin, period. Because sin on a horizontal level is not equal. Lying is not the same as murder, human to human. So the consequences of sin between man and God, God will forgive you. All you got to do, 1 John 1, 9, 
If you, or if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and he'll wipe it out. Isaiah 43 and verse 25 says, It is I, even I, who blot out your transgressions for my own sake. He's not even doing it for you. He's doing it so that the sacrifice of his son Jesus will not be for naught. I am he who blots out your transgression, makes it where you can't see it for my own sake. And listen, the verse is not over. And then he says this, and I will remember it no more. So when it comes to vertical sin, murder, lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, fornication, uh, homosexuality, uh, addiction, whatever, what, you name it. Vertically, sin is sin. Can I get an amen? amen? Horizontally, the consequences of sexual sin are way worse. Pregnancy, disease, divorce. They have human consequences that go way beyond the moment. Am I right? So what we have to figure out is Jesus, God, the Word of God, will never shame you because he wants to forgive you and forget it. Amen? And he does whether you do or not or whether somebody else does. Therein lies the problem with shame. Shame is not going to come from God. Shame comes on a horizontal level. I'm already helping some of you, and I really haven't even dug deep into the subject yet. But you have to recognize the source of shame is not from God. In any way, shape, fashion, or form. You know, I, God doesn't care where you've been, what you've been doing, or who you've been doing it with. He only cares about one thing, where are you going? And he wants to save your soul. He wants to redeem your life and make sure you get to heaven. And he doesn't give a rip about your past. That ought to get somebody excited in here. But the thing about shame and this story with this woman caught in adultery, with the Bible in one hand and a rock in the other, did you notice how Jesus handled this woman with total complete dignity he didn't judge her you think about we could go to John chapter 4 and we could uh, track through the story of the Samaritan woman Jesus had this long discussion with this woman who, who was number one a woman number two she was a Samaritan and, and, she, and number three she had a bunch of she lived with a bunch of guys and wasn't married to the guys she was living with she had passed. Read John 15, I mean Luke 15, too, where it says one translation says that Jesus hung out with scum. There was no shame in Jesus' game. He was never going to shame another person that was having issues. So I'm going I'm to look at everyone, every head up, every eye open, looking right here at the stage. Look at me. I'm just going to tell you, if you're feeling shame today, it is not coming from God. Period. And what that means is God's not angry, he's not mad, he's not frustrated. Now, if we lived in the Old Testament, we might all have some issues. But we live in the dispensation of grace, where God is patient, loving, kind, gentle, waiting for you to repent, waiting for me to repent. But you know, I've got two stories I want to tell you, and, and they're both lengthy stories, but I'm going to condense them somehow, some way. I stand in front of you that I have a little brother that's two years younger than me, or it was. He took his own life. He committed suicide in 1989. He was raised in the same house as me, raised the same ways, the same methods, and the, the, he, he got addicted to cocaine, got addicted to alcohol, and went down a really wrong path. He was beating the crap out of his wife in front of his two kids who were five and seven years old, and the neighbors called the cops. 
the cops showed up, and he gave an alias, and that's dumb because they can check your records who lives at that house. And they looked him up, took him to the car, and found that he had a ticket, a speeding ticket. So they arrested him to get him away from his wife. Hung himself with a bed sheet in jail the next morning before he got arraigned in front of the judge. Scary thought about that was, and, and my dad had been working with him. He, had a, he hadn't been working. He was a, a butcher by trade. And he had hair down to here. And a goatee beard and a handlebar mustache down to here. And nobody wanted to buy meat from a butcher that looked like that. But he, in, in Colorado where they live, where my family lived, at the, they moved up there and I stayed to marry my wife. So what the, the union, butchers are, were in a union in Denver, Colorado. They made him work at night. But he got so bad with alcohol and drugs that they, they told him, they had fired him for cause. My dad got a job for him, and he was good. The, the morning that he committed suicide, that day, he was supposed to go work for my dad so he could make some money. Now, there's, in this story, there's shame coming from all directions. I'm sure Ken felt shame because he couldn't take care of his family. He couldn't control his life. I don't, I, we'll never know what went on in that jail cell. I just can't imagine what brings a person to that point. And I, in a room this size, and even you say there's not a great number of people, but I, I would bet money that there's at least one or two of you that have contemplated taking your own life at some point. I, I don't understand that, but, but I don't have any shame to give you over it. I felt shame because my brother was compared to me all throughout school. I was an athlete. He was not. I made great grades, and I didn't even try. But every teacher, every coach, everything growing up, oh, you're Ed's brother. And there was always that comparison. I felt bad about that. Was I part of the problem? My parents felt total shame. They felt like failures as parents. But I go back to what, I, what I've already said to you, men. Shame does not come from God. Shame is on a horizontal level. Let me tell you another story. These are all, I'm, I'm going to make sense with all of this, these stories and stuff. I've found that we as listeners to sermons, we love stories more than statistics anyway, Right? Because I could certainly quote you some statistics about this stuff. But here's the thing. 27 years, 27 times, not because they're not consecutive years. 27 times in my ministry career, I've taken teenagers and adults to Hollywood, California to do street ministry with Ron and Judy Radicke. And it's a great place to train and teach how to do street ministry and how to share your testimony to a stranger. And if you can tell your testimony to a stranger, you know, the, the key thing is learn to tell your testimony in two minutes or less. We train everybody that I've ever taken. You've got to write your testimony down and be able to stand up and tell it in two minutes or less because that's about the only amount of time a stranger is going to give you. Can you set the hook in two minutes? And we test them on it. We... we we train. We don't just show up in Hollywood and say, oh, we're going to go witnessing. We start eight weeks out. We fast one day a week, and we train. And on the day we fast, we train students on what, they're, what to expect. So we were in what I affectionately call Boys Town, West Hollywood, the gayest place you'll ever be in your life. <laughs> if, you ever, if you ever walk down the street of La Cienega and, in West Hollywood, it's nothing but gay bars, and, and we take kids down there. You say, you've got to be kidding. No, I'm not kidding. And we were doing that before everything became such a crisis like it is now. So my oldest son, 
and my pastor's daughter, we, what, what we do is we pair people up. And in West Hollywood, you don't put two guys together and you don't put two girls together. You put a guy and a girl together. And so, and we put leaders within sight. You give them an area. So you have eyes on them at all times on these teams. Well, my son and my pastor's daughter were talking to these two guys that were standing there holding hands and just as pretty as you please, hugging on each other, talking to each other. And, and all of a sudden, he got argumentative. And I could see it from a distance. And so I walked over and was just going to diffuse the whole situation and just say, God bless you and move everybody on. Because it was not, it was, it, had, it was going downhill. There was not an opportunity to witness. So I get over there and I introduce myself. I say, hi, you know, on the street, you, you, all you guys, I can teach you something here. You don't ask for last names. You just say, hi, my name's Ed. And so to, to leave, what, what I train people on is I say, hi, my name is Ed. And then I say, is it, would it be okay if I prayed for you before we go? And that's what I said. And I said, I'm going to put my hand on your shoulder and pray for you. Is that okay? And the guy's name, the, there was a black guy. His name was Andre. And there was a white guy. They were the couple. And the other guy's name was James. And they were standing there. And I, so I, I prayed for him. Well, once I started praying for these two gay men, the Holy Spirit opened up my mind because he answered the prayers that we had prayed. Lord, let us be the answer to grandma, moms. Let us be the answer to somebody's prayer in Hollywood. And so all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit downloads into my mind a little truth about Andre. I'll, and I've gotten, if I'm wrong, he's just going to think I'm some weirdo. If I'm right, the Holy Ghost is going to hit him between the eyes. Right? So you need to take a chance sometimes. It's not your reputation on the line, it's his. So we got through praying. I said, hey, Andre, your mom pastors a Baptist church in North Carolina, and she's got prayer teams praying for you around the clock. And his eyeballs went, boing, popped out of his head, and he let go of his gay lover's hand, and he stepped up right in my face and he said, how do you know that? I said, dude, we've been praying for weeks. I am the answer to your mother's prayer. It's not, I, I, I mean, I just got anointed right there on the street. I just said, dude, it's not an accident that I met you. It's not an accident I walked up here. God has got your number. It's time for you to repent, break up with this guy, and go back to North Carolina where you came home from and live for God. Well, his boyfriend got really mad, grabbed him by the shoulder and said, come on, let's get out of here. Well, they took off. But you know what, guys? There was no shame. I, the way I'm preaching about it is a little more, way more boisterous than the way it came off in real life. But he knew that, I said, man, as he walked off, I said, Andre, Jesus loves you. So we're in Hollywood for seven days. Only the old people in the room like me will remember this movie. It had Syl Sylvester Stallone in it. And the name of the movie was Judge Dredd. Anybody remember that movie? Okay. So the premiere of the movie, of that old movie, was Friday night on Hollywood Boulevard. And they closed the streets down. And they put in bleachers and stands. And they had the red carpet and the limos were pulling up. Well, Ron and Judy said, that's a prime place for us to minister. So we went out at 10 o'clock at night. All of our different teams had different areas. And I told my team, my kids, I, I'm going to stand right here on this corner. And they all knew what it was. And I said, you've got to come meet me here at such and such time. And we're walking back to the Oasis because it's just down the road. Well, I got there 10 minutes early. 
And the crowd at the Judge Dredd premiere had already started dispersing. And I look up, and out of the crowd, walking right at me is Andre. I said, Andre, it's not an accident. There are more than 13 million people that live in this area, and we are 8 to 10 miles away from West Hollywood, and you see me again. God has your number. It's time to repent. Turn your life around and come to God. Now, why am I telling you these two diverse stories? Because Jesus, the the shame I felt over my brother's suicide, the shame my parents felt, did not come from God. I refused to shame Andre in the middle of his sin. Jesus refused to shame the woman caught in adultery. Jesus refused to shame the Samaritan woman who had multiple husbands or lived with multiple men. And the man she was living with was, are y'all catching me? Do you understand the the weaving of these stories to help you understand (coughs) as men that God will never shame you? And some of you have a past. Well, we all have a past. But some of you have a worse past than others. Some of you are still trying to get over your past. But the one thing that Jesus always did when he dealt with these people was he never, never left them. Even Nicodemus, you must be born again. He always gave them the gospel. And what I'm trying to show you is that everyone, including yourself, deserves dignity in the eyes of God. Sinner, saved, whether you're saved, whether you're not saved, everybody deserves dignity. But you know what? That's not what shame does. Shame beats the hell out of you. Shame tells you you're no good, you never will, you'll never arrive. You'll never make it. You're never going to finish. Shame just, it's, it's the ball and chain you drag around with you. It's the memory that Satan beats you over the head with and says, you are not going to get there. I'm not going to ask you to say amen because I don't want anybody to, you got to plead the Fifth Amendment here. But every one of us in this room have dealt with shame. Don't raise your hand. There's probably somebody's cheated on their wife in here. There's probably somebody in here that stole money. There's probably somebody in here that you got fired for cause. Jesus does not shame us, men. It's the devil. It's on a horizontal level. And here's the, we're warriors, okay? But warriors, if you don't deal with your shame, if you don't deal with the thing that's holding you back, you don't become the warrior that God wants you to be. Amen? So I want to help you deal with the shame that is within. The Webster's New Collegiate 3rd Edition Dictionary says that shame is this. It's the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, ridiculous, done by oneself or another. And again, I told you I read books on it, but I wrote my own definition. Pastor Ed's definition is this. Shame is the paralyzing emotion that freezes you up on the inside and says you cannot finish. Shame grabs you around the throat and says you will not make it. And it's an emotion. And that's the scary thing because I'm making a huge generality here, but most of us as men were not real emotional. I'm a crier. I go to movies and cry. 
Anybody seen The Boys in the Boat? The movie? Great movie, isn't it? The book's even better. Every one of you needs to go see The Boys in the Boat. And you need to realize what it takes to become a team. Pastor Brian, if you don't read it I'm gonna, and go see the movie, I'm going to kick you in the butt. <laughs> it's one of the best books I've ever read in my life. They left out so much in the movie. Of course, they never can get. But here, here's my, my point. I cried in the movie. Why did I cry in the movie? I, I, I don't know. I'm an emotional man. But shame, mark my words, guys, shame is an emotion that when it happens, most of us as, as men, we just bury it. We just stuff it where nobody can see it. And you young men that are in here, you better figure it out now not to do that because there's some of us in here that have been carrying shame for a long time. And it's paralyzed, like the definition says. There's men that could stand up, come up here and grab this microphone and tell you, I didn't do this because of shame. I should have done that, but I didn't because of shame. It, because it paralyzed you and said, you can't, you won't, you never will, you won't finish. There are dreams that the enemy stole from you that were God-ordained dreams because you couldn't get free from the shame. Let's just, let's just deal with the low-hanging fruit for a minute. I don't want to go too deep into this. Let's just deal with masturbation for a second. Oh, I just sucked all the air out of the room. <laughs> My face doesn't turn red and I don't get embarrassed because I'm going to help some of you. Masturbation, when I talked about it in public schools, yeah, I talked about it in public schools. Because it came into every question box. Hello? So, masturbation is just when a man or a woman brings themselves to sexual climax by themselves. So, from here on out, we'll call it solo sex. Everybody say solo sex. If I asked everybody to say masturbation, you'd all go... Three things that are not true about solo sex will not cause you to go blind. It will not cause hair to grow on your hand. I heard those things growing up. And it will not send you to hell. You cannot find me a scripture. But let me tell you three things that masturbation, I mean solo sex, will do. Solo sex will cause you, as a man, when it comes to intimacy with women, especially with your wife. Now, here's what I, I want to define something. I want to talk about the, the person that, the young person, I got a lot of young people in here. The young person that finds out how their body functions sexually and casually participates in solo sex are not going to have these problems. I've masturbated, I mean, had solo sex because I found out how my body functioned. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Shame does not have a hold on me. But what I'm talking about, these three problems that I'm about to describe to you is for the man, and if there were women in here, because women have solo sex too. If you habitually, day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month after month, you're habitually participating in solo sex, you're going to have three problems. When it comes to int intimacy with a woman, it, you will be selfish, 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 selfish. Because the habitual participation in solo sex makes sex and intimacy all about you and your pleasure. Which that problem leads to the second problem, which is married sexual issues. Because for you to habitually participate in solo sex, what's the greatest sex organ in your body? And it's not between your legs. It's between your ears. So while you're participating in solo sex, you're thinking about a Big Mac from McDonald's, right? No. You're thinking about the hottest 
woman with the biggest breast. She'll do anything you want, when you want it, how you want it, and that's what you're participating in solo sex to. Your wife can't compete with that fake memory. It's quiet in here. Somebody's probably needed to tell you this a long time ago. But your wife will never come. I've had people, in, married couples in my office. And I figured they tell me one of the things, they, one particular couple that I'm thinking of as a, as a pastor, they began to talk about some of their issues were intimacy issues. So I asked her to get up and leave the room. And I asked him, how long have you been masturbating? I mean, having solo sex and watching porn. He goes, since I was 15. I said, that's why you're having intimacy issues with your wife. She can't compete with the image in your head. You're a selfish, selfish man when you live like that. And I'm not going to apologize for saying it. Here's the third problem. Ted Bundy was a serial killer. He raped and killed 28 women. And the day before he was executed in the Florida State Penitentiary, he requested the only interview he'd given to radio, print media, any kind of media, he gave an interview to James Dobson. It used to be available on their website. I don't know if it still is or not. But he told James Dobson that what took him down the path of being a serial rapist and killer was he started masturbating and looking at pornography when he was 13. Habitual participation in solo sex over a long period of time will twist your brain and twist your mind on the way God intended for you to use sex. I'm not saying, don't go out of here, repeat me and say that, well, Pastor Ed said I'm going to be the next Ted Bundy because I masturbate. I mean, have solo sex. That is not what I said, is it? I said if you habitually over and over and over. Now, again, everybody sit on your hands. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But we've got men. We're men. You know, you know what the top three things are that turn a man on, right? What he sees, number one, what he sees, number two, and what he sees, number three. Right? And if you've if you're got this imagery and you've got these devices and there's pornography everywhere. I mean, sex sells everything from milk to, to cars. Right? And they know it. So... Why did I go through all of that about solo sex? Because there's some of you in here that have shame issues, not from God about that. They're all on a horizontal level. Now, there, you you said, Pastor, you told me that, that solo sex wouldn't send me to hell. But you know what? There are tons and tons and tons of scriptures. I got a bunch of pastors in here. There are tons of scriptures about as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable and will of God. And that what those verses are talking about is the most powerful sex organ in your body, your mind. And what you put in your mind, and those are now that's where. The vertical sin comes in and we're the conviction of sin. So you young guys, come on. Change what you're thinking. Change what you're looking at. You older guys, if you don't, if you, if you don't want to participate in solo sex and you don't want to change the what you're thinking on, change what you're looking at. But we're going to deal with shame. You say, Pastor, you're backing me into a corner tonight, and I feel like crap because of what you're talking about. Well, I'm not going to leave you there, okay? 
I promise you I'm not going to leave you there. There's three voices. There's the voice of shame, the voice of ashamed, and then there's a third voice called conviction. What's the difference between the voice of shame, ashamed, and conviction? The voice of shame is external. The voice of ashamed is internal. It's inside you. The thing that Jesus always communicated to, whether it was the woman caught in adultery, whether it was the Samaritan woman, whether it was Peter denying Jesus three times, Jesus always communicated with conviction. He communicated with the thing to help you. The voice of conviction is always trying to bring life to you. The voice of shame and the voice of the the ashamed is always trying to kill you dead. That's how you know the difference. You know that conviction is pulling you up out of the pit and telling you you can be better. You can do. Jesus said, go and sin. Jesus gave the, the, the Samaritan woman life at the end of their conversation. Moses was a murderer, but he finished. David was an adulterer, but he finished. Peter denied the Lord three times, but he finished. Paul was a killer of Christians, but he finished. There's so many people. You know, if I had written this book, I wouldn't have put all that in here. <laughs> because Jesus is like, you know, I, I think if I had been God, I'd man, see all these guys, they were, they were great. They were, they, but we see all their warts. We see all their failures. We see all their mess-ups. Why? So we can know that we can overcome. You just think about David on that roof looking at Bathsheba. Go look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and it says at the time when kings went out to war David quit being a warrior and took on a civilian spirit. Did you, that's a revelation for somebody in here. When you get in trouble is when you have a civilian spirit. When you're going to get out of the war, get out of the army, get out of the battle, leave your, your spear, leave your sword, leave your, your, uh, your garb, you leave it at home and send all everybody else out to war. That's when you get in trouble is when everybody else is fighting a battle and you stay home with a civilian spirit. And you can't tell me that David hadn't seen her before. He sent those boys out to battle and he went up on the roof and he was a pervert peeping Tom too. And because he's the king, he misused his authority, got her there, had sex with her, got her pregnant, and then he had to plot and plan and connive. Her husband was so honorable, he spent two nights with the king and he thought, he said, go home to your wife. And his, his, he was so honorable, he said, no. He slept on David's porch. The next night, you go read all this. This is in the Bible. The next night, David got him drunk, thinking he'll get drunk and go home and sleep with his wife. He got drunk and slept on the porch. But David finished. The New Testament tells us that he's a man after God's own heart. So don't you dare let the voice of shame paralyze you and freeze you up on the inside and say, you can't make it, you won't finish, you're no good, you're sorry, you're dirty, you did this, you did that. That is a lie from the pits of hell. Too many men have finished. Brian, you remember Blaine Bartell? One of our youth pastor contemporaries that cheated on his wife had two families. Had a a family in one city because he traveled all the time and had a family at home. The dude has been restored and healed and he's got, and and you you know where all his problems started? Pornography. That's in his testimony. But he's restored. He's back in ministry. I'm going to land this plane. And I'm going to help you. 
There are four kinds of shame I want to teach you about. And we're going to talk about it some more tomorrow. Number one, actual shame. Number two, accused shame. Number three is imputed shame. Number five and four is imploding shame. Now let's go back and define all of these. The next slide will tell you that actual shame, you did it, you sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's actual shame. I did it. I'm a sinner. And that's, by the way, that's every one of us in this room. If you've asked Jesus into your heart, you're a sinner saved by grace that has had actual shame. Not by works, lest any man should boast. By faith and grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Accused shame. It's the pointing finger. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He points his finger at you and says those words that I've said so many times tonight. That you can't make it, you can't finish, you're no good, you'll never rise up, you'll never get out of the mess, you'll never fix it, you'll never go forward. You can't, you won't, and you never will. That is the devil. Biblically, that's the devil, Revelation 12. That's his job, accusations, over and over and over. Imputed shame is original sin. We were born in sin. You mean some of you guys, maybe, anybody got a two-year-old baby in your home? A little two-year-old baby's born in sin. When the baby's two years, yeah, two years old, you know it's a sinner, don't you? <laughs> she, it's not an it, it's boy or girl? Boy. He's a sinner, isn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about original sin for a minute. We all want to blame Eve, right? She messed up, right? She listened to the devil. Original sin was not Eve. I hate to mess with your theology. You told me you're in Bible school. But I hate to mess with your theology, but it wasn't, it wasn't Eve, it was Adam. Let me tell you why. Listen closely, men. God showed Adam the tree of good and evil before Eve was ever around. And he told Adam, you go read the text, he told Adam, do not eat from the tree. When Eve went to the tree and listened to the devil and offered Adam the fruit, we don't know whether it's an apple or not, so I'm saying fruit, offered Adam, what should Adam have done? Woman, God said don't eat from that tree. Adam was a passive man that sat on his butt and let her dictate what he was going to do. That was original sin, passivity by Adam. That's a, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I'm telling you. Guys, passivity is, I, I'm not preaching on passivity, but I, I, can't, I can't help it. I got to tell you guys this. James chapter 4 and verse 17 says this, to him to knows to do right and does it not, it's a sin. Passivity is a sin according to James 4, 17. So you not leading your home spiritually is a passive sin before God. You not leading your wife, not leading your kids, not leading spiritually in your family is a passive sin before God. Well, I don't know how. My daddy wasn't like that. Shut up, crybaby. <laughs> just do it. There's no right way to pray. There's no, just read your Bible. Pray with your wife. Talk about spiritual things. Well, you know, I'm just not eloquent like you, Pastor. And God doesn't care whether you're eloquent or not. Your family doesn't care whether you're eloquent or not. They want a leader. Amen. 
You young guys, come on. Come on, guys. Step up to the plate. Be a leader, young man. Don't let your friends lead. Don't let some girly girl lead. You lead. Yeah. Are y'all feeling me? I'm not mad at you. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be yelling. I, I love you guys. So, imputed shame is a real deal. We've heard it. We've talked about it with the original. And then imploding shame is what we talked about a while ago. It's when we as men don't get emotional and we stuff that shame down inside. And what eventually happens? So what do we do? Well, actual shame, you confess it and God forgives it. We've already talked about that. Accuse shame, shut up devil, go back to hell where you came from. Biblically, we have the authority to do that. Am I right? Imputed shame, get saved. Get that two-year-old saved as soon as you can. Imploding shame, what do we do? James 5, 16. Here it is, guys. You're going to hate me for reading this verse. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Not confess your faults to one another so you can be exposed. Confess your faults to one another that you can be healed. We got too much exposure going on these days. I mean, I get it. But you got to find somebody you love, somebody you trust. I'm going to stop. We'll pick back up in the morning. But I want to pray for you. Put your pens away. Close your Bibles. If you have your Bibles on your phone or whatever, just turn them over. My brother's going to come to the piano and just play something real short and soft. Sweet. I don't know if you'll put the slide back up at the up there with the four kinds of shame on it. I don't know which one you're dealing with. And, and I'm definitely not going to put your business in the street. That's not my job. I feel like my role this weekend is make a deposit in you of some spiritual truths that can set you free, but it's got to be your choice to connect with God. Because there's no holes in my hands, guys. I can pray for you. And other brothers can pray for you. I want everybody to stand up, if you would, for a moment. I want to ask for privacy. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Nobody looking around. Please honor your brother's privacy here. I'm going to look around the room and make sure nobody's looking. Because this is a God moment in your life. Everybody get your hands out of your pocket and just put them down to your side. Just... Here's what I'm going to do. If you're dealing with actual shame, meaning you know you've sinned, I'm going to count to three, and I want you to just raise your hand and put it right back down. One, two, three. Put it right back down. Thank you for your honesty. If you feel and you know that the enemy is accusing you of your past, see, he doesn't know your present. He doesn't know your future. Satan is not omnipotent. Satan is not omniscient. And he's not omnipresent. All he has is to accuse you of your past. If if you are standing here as a man 
and you're dealing with accused shame, I'm going to count to three and you raise your hand. One, two, three. Raise your hand. Put your hands down. If you're standing here, you're dealing, you're not saved. You say, Pastor, I, I came to this men's retreat with a friend and I'm dealing with imputed shame. I realize I am a sinner and I need Jesus. Who knows? This could be the best night of your life, my friend. It could be the best decision you've ever made in your life to say yes to Jesus. You've known you need to do it and you just hadn't done it. Well, tonight's your night. If that's you and you're dealing with imputed shame from birth, Adam and Eve, you don't know that you've never realized never surrendered, never crossed the line that Jesus would be your Savior. Tonight is your night. If you need to give your heart to God for the first time in your life, I'm going to count to three and you raise your hand. One, two, three. Get your hand up. There's one right there. Anybody else? Put your hand down, sir. Okay. If you're standing here and you're dealing with imploding shame. It could be actual, it could be accused, but you've stuffed it and stuffed it, and there's stacks upon stacks. You haven't dealt with it. It's imploding shame. I'm gonna count to three. I want you to raise your hand. One, two, three. Get your hands up. Put them right back down. Thank you. Every head up, every eye open, looking right here at me. Thank you for respecting one another's privacy. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to count to three again. And if you raise your hand for one or all of them, it'll make a difference. I want you to get out of your seat. I want you to come gather right around the front right here. Nobody's going to know what you raised your hand for because I was looking around the room. Nobody's looking. Okay? But you raise your hand for one or more. One, two, three. Come on. Right here. Come on. Move all the way to the front so there can people can come in behind you. Come on, guys. Come on up. There we go. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What are you doing here? I don't know. I didn't know you were going to be here either. I already texted there saying, <laughs> Tell me your name again. Ethan. Ethan. I got to minister to Ethan at City Church on Tuesday night. Good to see you, buddy. Look at me, guys. I gave you the scriptures for the kind of shame that you raised your hand for. Okay? And I'm going to talk some more about it tomorrow and help you some more. that shame frees you up on the inside. You already know, as young as you are, there's a calling. I'm not saying to, I don't know if it's the ministry or what, but you're a leader. People listen to you when you talk. People watch you when you act. And do not let the devil steal your biblical, God-given Christian leadership ability. There's a difference. You can lead the right way or the wrong way. What are you going to do? But you got to deal with the shame, which I know you're doing right here. This is good. It's a good thing for you. There's healing for you tonight. Deep, inner. When you go to sleep tonight, God's going to do something supernatural on the inside of you because of what you're doing right now, right here. You're ready to let it go. You're really, you're ready, ready, ready. Yeah. It's real, isn't it, guys? Head up, eyes open, both hands over your heart, like this. Sir? the glasses and the beard you're an overcomer you have been all your life you've overcome a lot of stuff but shame has held back 
some victorious moments in your life. You had opportunities and you didn't take them. You're going to get another chance. You're going to get another chance. God's not done yet. Does that make sense to you? Head up, eyes open, pray with me. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for despising the shame and going ahead and going to the cross. Thank you for healing me tonight. On the inside, I am more than a conqueror. Neither height, nor depth, nor powers, nor things to come, nor demons can ever separate me from the love of God. I am more than a conqueror in Jesus' name. I will be free. I will tell the devil to go back to hell where he came from. I will overcome my shame. Now just listen to me for a minute. We always quote Isaiah 53, 5. By his stripes we were healed. But what is before that, it says he took our sorrows and our griefs and our rejection. The cross was just as much about inner healing as it was spiritual healing and physical healing. Amen? Amen. Shame is an emotion that paralyzes you and freezes you up on the inside. Let inner healing take place in your life tonight. Give Him your griefs, give Him your sorrows, give Him your rejections, give Him your doubts, give Him your shame. I was going to wait till tomorrow to talk about this, but I feel like I've got to go ahead and go for it right now. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 talks about seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Hey, listen. We're going to talk about some other ways to be free tomorrow. But the best way for you to stay free from shame is to knock the demonic tutors off your... Don't let shame teach you. Some of you are letting shame be your tutor. It sits here in your ears and chirps. You can't, you won't, you never will. You're not good enough, you're not smart enough. And it says that in the last days there will be seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And that's where I get that phrase that I've been repeating. Tell the devil to go back to hell where he came from. Say, no more, no more. Those demonic tutors that have been teaching you, and you're, no more, no more shame, no more shame. Shame's on Jesus, not on you. Shame's on him, not on you. No more demonic tutors. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray. No more. You will not from this night forward ever let Satan tutor you with seducing spirits and doctrines of demons that you've been listening to for years. You didn't even know that's what it was. You've been saved. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been serving God and serving the church. And the enemy has been sitting on your shoulder teaching you and tutoring you how you can't, you won't, you never will. That stops tonight in Jesus' name.